1: I'm Gina Burt, and this is the LSQ Podcast. If there was any ethos, it was that we don't have one. It's that we are open to let people in. We're really trying to do something that is beyond our ability, and we don't know how to do it and this is our gift to you. These are our songs. They are in the process of
2: becoming, and here they are. Hey, it's Jenny Ellescue. I love that idea of songs that are in the process of becoming. That was Gina Birch talking about the early days of her old band, The Raincoats. In the late 70s, The Raincoats helped define the sound of UK post-punk, and were among the first female bands to do so. And in episode 85 of the LSQ podcast, Gina talks about life before, during, and after the Raincoats, and especially about her debut solo album, I Play My Bass Loud, It's Awesome, and it's out this week, in late February of 2023, thanks to Jack White's Third Man Records. And we began by talking about, well, why it took so long for her to make a solo album. Let's get into it.
1: I think what happened was it, it was technology, really, because I'd been making lots of films and videos. And, you know, like I was making music videos for bands and the budgets got smaller and smaller and smaller. So I was doing lots of final cut. So I was filming and then editing and doing the whole caboodle myself. Then I also got Logic 9 on my computer and I started playing with it, sampling and putting things in and da-da-da-da-da. And you can do that on your own. You know, you're a one-man band. You can put in the loops and sounds and do the vocals. And suddenly I had these almost complete songs that I made myself. And so it was more or less genuinely a solo record. You know, I'd done The Hangovers before, which was kind of a solo project, but I've got other musicians in. I've had the drummer and different bass players and different people in so, I didn't feel quite as solo as this is solo. This is me and a machine and a few friends, little bits here and there. And then, obviously, going to work with youth and completing them and writing a couple of extra bits and one song we wrote together. So, it's more solo than anything I've done before. That is very true. Why it happened now kind of technology, kind of fortunate that I met Dave Buick and he was. Interested in doing something. I feel like when I was doing a pop project, Dorothy, in my kind of mid to late 20s, they told me I was too old, you know. And now I'm kind of over that hump of age. (laughs) I think for women, there's a bit in the middle between late 20s and probably 50, you know, I don't know, or 60, where you're just kind of, ooh. But I think I've come out the other end now. And it's bizarre to me why it's all happening. I'm always working away. I'm always making things and making films and doing paintings, writing songs. It just so happened I hooked up with the right people at this time, you know.
3: And what was the first of this group of songs that doing this process you're talking about with Logic and putting it out where it felt like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not just messing around with Logic and with some pieces of music. I'm making an album now.
1: Well, I never knew really that I was making an album, but Let's Go Crazy was an early one. You know, I put a long kind of in that bass line that, you know, I'd written different bits of tunes and then I was playing with like vocal effects and auto tune. Then I did some mad guitar, smashing the guitar on it and, and stilettos, you know, they were just things like. I would start them and then they'd be in the computer for a while and then I'd come back to them and it was like I was speaking to them. I'd come back and I'd, I'd have a phrase that I wanted to interject into the song, you know, like, let's go crazy, let's go crazy or, uh, you know, do you like those shoes? Or, they were little phrases that I was like, I'm going to ask you a question, <laughs> this song that I have kind of given life to is now kind of talking back to me and holding its own and I'm having a conversation with it. So the most recent song I wrote that I took to youth that was really a guitar song, because I have to tell you what happened was I met youth and he said, I like your crazy, bad guitar playing and your singing. So he was very keen for me to do a guitar and vocal thing. And I said, well, I've got all these kind of electronic songs that I've been working on, and I don't really have those guitar songs. But I wrote one, and I, I wrote Rage, and it was kind of, I'd written a guitar part, and I put that into the computer, and I wrote another little guitar part on top. And youth had been talking about middle eight, so I'd written a middle eight for it. But I hadn't really written a chorus or a pre-chorus, and, and so I took that to youth as kind of a longish thing. And he said, well, where's the chorus? I said, I don't know. So he said, well, I think I Am Rage is the chorus. And perhaps you just need a pre-chorus. Have you got any words? And I said, oh, yes, I've got uh, Please don't ask me to be reasonable. I'm just not listening. And then we put that in. And then suddenly we had this kind of song, pop song kind of thing. I was like, whoa, that's really strange. But he's used to that, you see. He's used to kind of forming things, cutting things down, kind of making it simple, cut to the chase kind of thing. Me, I'd have put another section in that didn't really know where it was going and then another section. And in a way that's kind of more the raincoats that we kind of went a bit anti, you know, verse, chorus, middle eight, pre-chorus, you know, all that stuff. We kind of dropped the formula. We were like, no, we don't want to know that formula. So it was interesting working with youth because suddenly it was like he kind of simplified a process that I'd been turning my back on. And it was kind of fun. You know, it was a bit of a revelation to me. (laughs) It's like discovering a knife and fork or something. Yeah,
3: yeah, no, because the structure, the structure makes does make things easier, right? In a way where you're like, okay, I've got a pre- Sure, I need a pre-course, I've got a pre-course. <laughs> it's nothing so mysterious at a certain point.
1: We were like, we don't want to know the structure. We want to make something of our own. That was what our thinking was. We knew that we could easily fall into it if we wanted to, because I mean, half the time, You know, you've got three or four chords in the verse, you've got a couple of chords in the pre-chorus, one, maybe two different ones in the chorus. You know, it's not rocket science, to be honest. It's quite a simple process. Maybe, I mean, people may say, oh, you're talking rubbish, but I'm not sure. You know, if you look at the chords of songs, and now it's so easy, you know, you go on the internet and you can find every damn chord and then diagrams for it and... It's all there laid out in front of you. You just need a few different words and a few different melodies.
3: <laughs> so let's go back to the beginning. Tell me about when you first remember, like as a kid, feeling creativity appealed to you.
1: Oh, well, I was always quite scared because people would say, use your imagination. And I think, where is my imagination? I didn't know where to locate it. I didn't really know what they meant. So I was quite worried that the fairies at birth hadn't given me an imagination. Some people seem to have one. They'd have a mysterious friend or they could visualize something. That wasn't my thing. I couldn't. I didn't. And I didn't really know what it was. I used to like singing and I used to like drawing. And there were two things I liked and I was quite good at. So maybe that's it. I think I thought the imagination was something more magical, you know, because you're know you, re, you know, you're all about fairies and Father Christmas and, you know, all this kind of wild fantasy stuff that you're fed. But I didn't go off on another one with my own thing. I think I was probably fairly grounded in a way. <laughs> so I would just, I, I like singing melodies and I like drawing. And that was a kid. And then...
3: And what would you have been singing? Like, what did you like to sing? What was the music that appealed to you at that point?
1: Oh, well, when I was a kid, it was musicals. (laughs) You know, it would be something from The Sound of Music or My Fair Lady or... We had this thing called Two-Way Family Favorites on the radio. So there were all these kind of hits like The Laughing Policeman or How Much Is That Doggy In The Window or all those kind of sing-along songs that kids would sing in those days. And then, you know, eventually we got a, a little record player and it would be, you know, a lot of the Ronettes type things and, you know, Be My Baby and the Phil Spector sound and then the Beatles, obviously, and, you know, that kind of thing.
3: When did you start to get sucked in to music, to caring about music?
1: Well, I think I always liked tunes and melody, but I wasn't even like a big hardcore Bowie fan or Rolling Stones or anything. And You know, I heard the Velvet Underground. I liked them. My brother had records that kind of got me sucked in a bit. Melanie. I loved Melanie. And he also had Bob Marley and Bob Dylan. You know, those things. that kind of boys at university bring home and their kid sister kind of hears them through the wall and then borrows the records, you know. My brother had the Catch a Fire Bob Marley album, which has a cigarette lighter for the cover. And so I think Bob Marley had come to the UK and he was kind of slightly tarted up a bit to be slightly more acceptable and marketed to the British public. So this lighter album was very good. So yeah, I remember going to art school and uh, when I was on foundation, I'd be bobbing around singing, get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. And my friend Alex was like, what are you on about? <laughs> yeah. Then a bit later, she realized it was Bob Marley. And she was
0: like, oh, yeah, that was cool. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe, every day, at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed so you don't have to.
1: Download the new Bumble now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and how did it start to translate into the desire to have your own band and, and to make music yourself?
1: Well, that was a bit like the surprise that I'm having now, of finding that I'm making my first solo record at my age and having my first big solo painting show. It came upon me completely out of the blue. I had moved to London and punk was... Just happening. And where I moved to in West London, in Notting Hill, I was at a kind of part of a center of it. It was near Rough Trade, and I was living next door to Richard, who'd been in the 101ers with Joe Strummer. And he was married to S. He who was Palmolive's sister. Now, Palmolive started the Slits. I'd been going to see lots of bands. You know, I'd seen the Sex Pistols, the Clash. I was a big, big fan of that. But it felt like punk was something really special. And I was, you know, 18 and it was my thing. You know, I I could feel it was my thing. But I was still, I was a fan. I was a girl. And I would just be, you know, I'd have sugar in my hair and my mohair jumpers and my skinny jeans and my big feet. And, you know, it was just like, I was there, you know, at the Roxy all the time. And I saw a couple of girls up on stage, but never a whole band. And it was only when I saw the slits a little later that I realized that it was like someone broke this barrier in front of me. It suddenly smashed or fell down. And it was like, girls can do it too. Oh, my God. And it was like this ridiculous revelation that seems so absurd now. But prior to that, it hadn't felt like it was possible. You know, the boys, you only needed three chords and you could write a song. Well, I didn't say, girls, you only need three chords and you can write a song. But suddenly, it was. It was, girls, you can do it too. And it was very shocking. It was very shocking, and it was even more shocking that it hadn't been evident before. You know, it's just like those kids you suddenly see or they can suddenly have glasses they can see in colour or like the Wizard of Oz or something turning to full colour. It was magical. I thought I really would like to be there on that stage with them. That is fantastic. I couldn't play an instrument. I couldn't sing. I mean, I could sing along, but I had nothing really to recommend me to be in a band except my enthusiasm. And in a way, that's what I realized was happening to no end of people in that punk scene. You know, a lot of people didn't have any skills, but they did it anyway. A lot of people did have a lot of skills and I felt they were, they were fakers because they knew too much. <laughs> kind of crazy. You couldn't win in my book, obviously. So it was the time where not to be able to do something, but the desire to do it. It was an extraordinary momentum or something. There was this thing pushing you, you know, I've never had a record label, but I'm going to have one now. Or I've never had a band, but I'm going to do it now. And it felt like there was this energy in the air for people who couldn't do things to give it a crack. And it wasn't like, it wasn't in an art school situation. It was real life. And that was what was bizarre because, you know, we, we were squatters. We were living in houses that we didn't have to pay rent on. We got a little bit of money from the government. And suddenly there was all this energy and creativity around. I mean, it was bizarre. What's not to like? At a certain point, did
3: you feel like, though, that you opened a portal? I mean, you had the enthusiasm and you couldn't play yet, but then there you were doing it and the actual musicality of it. Did that start to, or you're like, yeah. I'm going to play this fucking bass. (laughs) I'm going to play the shit out of this bass. Here we go.
1: Well, I suppose, you know, someone taught me how to tune it. Then I had to learn. I didn't learn scales or anything. I just had the Toots and the Maytels record. So there I am with, there's all these notes on this bass. And I'm trying to listen and it goes up high in in the record. And I'm like, hmm. Now, which one of these many notes could it be? And eventually, I think I found that one, and then there'd be another one, and then another one. And then eventually, probably after about a week, I found doo doo-doo, doo do doo do doo do doo 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 And they're all quite close together, you know. I was imagining they'd be miles apart because I didn't really know anything about music. But what I did realize was there was a visual pattern. So I learned this visual pattern and I was a visual artist, you see. So there was this visual pattern and then I'd learn other bass lines and then I'd realize that I found out about the root note (laughs) and something about the third and the fifth, but I knew that rock and roll was and I wasn't going to do that because I wasn't playing rock and roll. If I was affiliated to any music that already existed, it was probably reggae, because I liked the bass because it had a bit of space around it. The guitar would skank, you know, it would just be a skank. Whereas in rock music, the guitar would be thick and heavy, and then the bass might underpin the heavy notes. Well, I didn't really like that. That just felt very boring. So when it was thick, heavy notes, I'd kind of often go high up on the neck so I could play a little tune. It might come from a hymn that I knew at school or something from The Sound of Music or a little tune in my head that popped in from somewhere. And then I'd try playing that on the bass and then I'd slide. I did a lot of sliding and that felt interesting. So I was just trying to find my way around all these frets and dots and notes on this bass. And I chose it because I thought... I can't play the guitar that's got six strings, and it's complicated, and chords, and I can't play the drums, that's too big. But I thought bass would be something I could kind of handle. And then you make it yours, you know. As the, you
3: started getting to a place where the Raincoats had songs, and you were going to start playing shows and that sort of thing, what was the sort of ethos that you had about what the band was?
1: Tell you the truth. We played our first gig after only a few weeks of being together. I could not play. I could do something, but I wouldn't call it really playing. I've made a few tunes, but when you're standing in front of people, you forget the notes. (laughs) There was no ethos. I mean, I think if there was any ethos, it was that we don't have one, is that we are open. We kind of open to let people in. Here we are doing something. We're really trying to do something that is beyond our ability and we don't know how to do it. And this is our gift to you. These are our songs. They are in the process of becoming and here they are. And I might have my back to you or keep my eyes closed for the whole of the gig.
3: (laughs) It must've been interesting. You know, you talk about like this revelation that girls could have bands too and play. How was that met? among audiences of, I'm guessing, still kind of mostly dudes at that point? I mean, like, how did young men react to the slits and the raincoats and and as there started to be more girls and bands?
1: I think they accepted the slits a bit more than us because, you know, like Viv really kind of was very appealing to boys. However much she says she wore some things, she was very appealing to boys the whole band was much more radically dressed in a kind of slightly charming way. We were still like wearing things inside out and upside down. We were a bit more to the grunge, what became grunge later, you know. We were cute and we were young, pretty girls, I suppose. And we had spotty dresses, but they were torn. You know, I'd buy something oversized because I liked the fabric and then I'd put a big belt on it or a, got a woolly jumper over the top or wear Wellington boots. We didn't have any idea of trying to please. We were pleasing ourselves in a kind of funny and slightly antagonistic way, but not really. I mean, in one picture I've got, I'm wearing a really old, weird necklace of my mum's and a big kind of mohair jumper and a spotty skirt that's way too big and trousers underneath and you know I'm like what was I wearing you know but I had a little mirror this big and uh, you know I lived in a squat with only cold running water you know the slits both had their mums up the road you know (laughs) access to baths and sewing machines and I did have a sewing machine actually but you know we were a bit harder to like and I think the people who didn't fit in to society and maybe not even quite fit into punk really liked us.
3: <laughs> That's who you want to like you.
1: That's who you want. And, and, and the kind of style punks thought we were a bit, ooh, you know, and they thought that music was difficult and, you know, perhaps we might, should make more effort in our appearance. <laughs> I don't know.
3: Was there a kind of, a, yeah, gender dynamic, where once the band was a thing and it was like, no, this is not just, we're not just messing around, we're a thing. What was the sort of acceptance level?
1: Well, there were men like Jeff Travis and Mayo Thompson who were very interested in music and breaking new ground. So we were supported and, you know, Spritty Polity and Swell Maps and Young Marble Giants and various bands around us found us, you know, inspiring and great. And there was a kind of sense of camaraderie. I think people have grown to love us more over the years. They love us more now, probably, than they ever did then. I think they've begun to realize we were more interesting than they had given us credit for. So now they're going, yes, you were always really interesting, really good, you know. But we didn't even play that much, to be honest. We did a 28-day tour at the beginning, and then we played a lot in Germany, Holland, Italy, France when I say a lot, we did a few little tours there. And then we play The Odd Date in the UK. And and then we make another record. When we made Oddie Shape, Palmolive had left. And we were in my basement for ages trying to work out how to play music without a drummer. So we recorded a lot of it without a drummer. And then Robert Wyatt came in and put some drums on. And that was interesting, but it took a lot of time. And we barely played Odyssey Shaped live because it was such a weird, odd record. And we went to America and we did play half the songs live. And then we probably played a few more dates and then we made Moving, at which point we broke up. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. So why did you break up during those years? And I understand obviously coming back was partially just there's this opportunity and Nirvana was talking about the raincoats and giving this chance for it to be a thing again.
1: Actually, it was different from that to an extent because what happened was we'd been so long and when we were doing our thing, there was vinyl and there were cassettes. And then this thing called CDs happened. And when CDs happened, Anna and I said, oh, why don't we do a little celebration? We'll play one gig in London and one gig in New York. Won't that be fun? So we thought we'd just play two shows to celebrate the CDs. Well, I think what happened then, someone got wind of the fact that we were thinking of playing these two shows. And I think it got to Nirvana's booking agent, Russell Warby. And because Kurt was a big fan of our first album, I got this phone call. I'd just come out of film school. I'd been to film school then, and I was just doing my first project, and I got a phone call. Saying, would the Raincoats like to go on tour with Nirvana? Well, by this time, we didn't know who Nirvana was because Kurt had been in London looking for the album and gone to Judy from Rough Trade had sent him to where Anna was working, just round the corner. So we got to know a bit about Nirvana. And I was just trying to launch my film, you know, I was just getting involved in making films. And, and I thought, oh my God, you know. Mad to do it, but madder not to. You know, it's almost like, do you take these opportunities or do you say no, thank you? So we decided we would try and take that opportunity because what happened was Anna and I got together in my living room and I still still had this massive bass amp in my living room been sitting there for 10 years just as a kind of shelf. (laughs) It was a huge speaker with a little amp on the top and probably just piled up with things, you know, as you do. Anyway, we plugged in and had a little um, guitar amp as well. And we started playing and we were like, oh, my God, it sounds great. It sounds so fresh and lovely. And we were quite excited about doing it. And actually, because I think Anna said to me once at that point, you know, I think we played less than 200 gigs. You know, perhaps we could play a few more now. And so that's what we decided.
3: But in this interlude, when you went to film school and the raincoats are sort of, du- I mean, Did you feel like it was done? You know, before the CDs thing happened, you thought, you know what, that was cool, did some stuff that I wanted to do there, but I'm fine now, film is calling me.
1: Yeah, I didn't uh, have any, um, you know, I wasn't like thinking, oh, I really want to have another band. Vicky and I tried to have like a pop band, because what had happened in the kind of, I don't know, 84, 83, 84 MTV had started, and you know David Bowie had tried to do a pop album, and then Scritti Politti had gone pop, and it seemed like everyone was kind of foregoing their um, left field inclinations. And so Vicky and I decided I was quite in love with Cindy Sherman's work, and I thought it'd be quite fun to make a kind of pop album about female identity. You know, you could be the identity you wanted to be. When you got up in the morning, if you put on dungarees or you put on a nice dress or whatever. So I like this idea of kind of playing with female identity. I mean, the ones that we knew about then, (laughs) which were quite narrow compared with the ones we know about now. And so we did a lot of playing and we eventually, Jeff Travis signed us to Chrysalis Records and we recorded an album. And then the head of the A&R or something came in and said, don't like this, drop them. I think they dropped half the roster. And we were on that roster. So suddenly, we weren't doing Dorothy anymore. And then I did a few other little bits and bobs. And then I went off to film school. And when I came out, I wasn't like desperate to have another band. I mean, I knew the fickle nature of, of the music business. And The difficulties of being in a band, basically. You know, it's not that easy being in a band, you know. The odds are against you. Well, you know, in a way, the thing that made Anna and I great together was our differences. She was kind of a bit older. She was a bit darker in, what's the word? Personality. She was kind of, um, and I was kind of more jokey and on the surface and bubbly and melodic and. Childish. <laughs> and, you know, we got on each other's nerves, but it was also what made us great together. Like a lot of teams, you know, sometimes the whole is greater than the parts. And, you know, we were very good together. But after a while, we felt we were really holding each other back. Whether we were or not, I don't know. Probably not. And in the midst of all this, this whole
3: time, you're doing. You know, various kinds of, obviously you went to film school, but the visual arts thing is an ongoing presence and practice in your life during these years. Yes?
1: Well, in a way, I mean, I, I went to art school, but I'd never painted since I was at school. Here, you do something called A levels between 16 and 18, and then you go off to college or university. Most people go to university, but those of us who have, don't fit into that, uh, that box, we go off to art school. So I went to art school and I fell in love with like conceptual art, performance art, video art, you know. I always thought sculpture, you had to get a big piece of marble and chisel away at it. And suddenly I realised you could just set fire to something. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it was a whole uh, revelation to me that, you know, these ideas were very... Important and very energizing, so I didn't paint. It was only when I moved from West London after my daughters got to be about 10 and 12, we moved from West London to North London and got a bigger house. And as the kids were kind of growing up more, and I decided to enroll in a painting class, and suddenly, you know, I'm one of these people, I'm like living my life, and then suddenly I go. Oh, <laughs> it was like with the slits and with Derek Darman's films and happened to me with painting and I was just like this is it this is what I want to do on a big canvas I can tell a story and it can be layered it can be obscured it can be magical it can have little things and big things and texture and this and I just thought this is great I love paint and I fell in love with paint and I thought that's what I was going to do. I mean, I had had a a period where I thought I was going to be a child psychologist (laughs) and a period where I wanted to build grottos and a period where I wanted to do topiary, but they were a bit more short-lived. And do you find, though,
3: that the kind of the feeling that you get from these things is the same? Is it a similar feeling brought on by making music as by painting or making a film or a video.
1: Yeah, it is very similar. I mean, not completely identical because obviously, you know, they have different time spans as well. I mean, all of them can happen quickly, but a lot of them can happen very slowly. A painting tends to not be as slow as the others, but sometimes it is. It's just a different landscape in a way. You know, you've either got a big canvas and colours and textures or you've got little sounds and blips and bloops and deep sounds and high sounds. And it's a bit similar to colours. You've got a palette there of sounds and then you've got a kind of narrative that you weave through and then you can obliterate that a bit, both in painting and, and with film. I've always thought I'd like to make a musical, but I've never really made... I've never made anything longer than about uh, 25 minutes as a kind of little drama, you know? And so I don't know if I'd ever do that now, but I just like making funny little short films now, like about wearing stilettos or, you know. I have a lot of humour in my work, I think, and I like to make myself laugh or cry. (laughs) If something makes me laugh or cry, then I'm like... Oh, mm, that's quite good.
3: I mean, that's what I was going to ask, is whether it takes you somewhere else, whether the process of making the thing transports you somewhere.
1: Yeah, I think it does. I'm not quite sure where I land. You know, with the songs, they've kind of stuck in the computer. I've got films, loads of films in the computer that are just stuck in there. And then I've got these songs that were stuck in the computer, and now some of them are, whoop, out. And then I had all these paintings and then I had a show that three curators came and chose some paintings. And that was really interesting actually, because I realized curating is a fine art. Up until that point, I'd always thought curating, how can people think of it as an art form, you know, but I realized when these people put my paintings in a show that they curated it so beautifully, it was, it was really a, an art to it. And, uh,
3: What did the curation of all of this work that they were choosing among bring out? What ended up being kind of like the theme of the show?
1: Well, uh, different things because there were about six different rooms. So like the first room was I had these big scrolls, which were kind of colorful drawings of my squat. And in there were some records and record player. And then in the next room, there were these big paintings, one of which was like the cover for the, record, only it's a bit bigger. It's got the whole face. It was about me living when I first came to London. And then there was one about me knitting backstage. And then there was one about me with my first heroin addict boyfriend when I was like 50. I don't know, just the way the paintings spoke to each other in in each room. Then there was a room where I painted about film. And then there was a room where all the paintings were kind of a deep red. And then there was a painting a room where there were all lots of paintings about angels and Christ and religion. And they just picked things and and they sat together beautifully in shape and ideas. And I've got loads of other paintings about other themes, but they just picked those ones. I didn't have a say in what they would choose. I think if I didn't like it, I would have said something. But I was very interested to see what they would do. And I, I was really impressed.
3: It's interesting because I feel like there's a parallel between this process you're describing and working with youth on the album of like the collaboration thing or just like being reminded that sometimes some other fresh opinion or like zoomed out perspective of what you're doing can propel you forward in a way that you might not have done on your own.
1: Exactly. I think sometimes I'm so far in the pool. I can't see the bigger picture sometimes. So I think you're absolutely right. It's been very helpful for me to have those people kind of curating both the music and the painting.
3: Do you think that that's going to change sort of in the near future going forward? Like, has this kind of sparked the idea of, okay, now that I see what that show was, I can picture what the next solo exhibit might be or not? No, she's shaking her head. <laughs>
1: No, I don't really want to. You know, I quite like not being so prescribed. I feel then I'm kind of putting something on top of it, and I just want to respond to each thing. I like the freedom. You know, like the last painting, I did a painting because when I was a baby, I had three blood transfusions, and in my left thigh, I had a big scar where they've done the blood transfusions on a day-old baby. Well, last year, I had a melanoma on my leg, and they told me I had to take out a lymph node. And they were going to make a big scar in my right groin. And I just laughed. And I said, oh, that's so hilarious, because now I'm going to be symmetrical with my scars. I was going to have an extra one on my leg, and I'd have other scars from other things. But yeah, it made me laugh. And Because it made me laugh, I thought, I'm going to make a painting, which is going to be a naked self-portrait of me with all my scars. Because, you know, it's like this whole idea of all these naked women and their beautiful soft breasts and their gorgeous round bellies and their lovely skin. And I thought, I'd like to make a picture of myself. I'm not quite medical, but it would be an okay picture of me naked standing there. And I would kind of highlight the scars a bit more than they're actually visible. And I just found it really fun to do and great to make. And, and also that acceptance of oneself. I mean, I remember as a young teenager, because I had this blood transfusion in my leg, I got a few little tiny veins in my left thigh. And I remember being so humiliated about it when I was like 13, 14. People are wearing swimming costumes, you know, and I'd be like, oh my God. And I just thought, it's such a shame how we beat ourselves up for things that actually are part of the beauty of life, really. And so that was my acceptance moment. I mean, I wasn't not accepting of myself, but I thought the humor aspect of the symmetrical scars made me want to make the painting. When does your tour, you're, you're doing dates
3: over there in the UK, yes, coming up? Yes.
1: I've got a couple of nights, one at the blue basement at third man and then one at Rough Trade East There, just as the album is launched and then I've got only five dates towards the end of March in Brighton London Glasgow Dublin and Leeds and then you know I think I will be invited to do some festivals because actually I'm a, I'm a new girl on the block really <laughs> I mean promoters are having a hard time at the moment anyway and no one knows if how many tickets I'd sell you know at least if it if it's the raincoats, they can estimate that i probably sell this many tickets or, you know. But with just me, they don't know. Well, I'm getting radio play and stuff, so that's cool.
3: Might you come to North America as well?
1: I'm hoping so. I think it'd probably be early autumn. After these dates, I've got some paintings I've got to do and bits of film. But I'm, you know, I'm always ready just to pick up the guitar and head off. So I've got a little band, there's two other women, we've kind of unpacked the record and we're putting it back together with the three of us with bits of machinery and we've got three basses at one point and two guitars and a bass at another point. I was gonna have films, but I think I've just drive myself insane at this point until we have a little bit more of an input to have another person, you know, who might do that.
3: But you're excited about it all, I'm sensing. (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) I'm really excited. It's like, you know, it's still, I'm just waiting to wake up, you know. It just shouldn't happen to me at this point in my life. (laughs) So I'm really, you know, I'm like, I'm really, really thrilled. It's great. And the raincoats, actually, we're playing next week at the White Cube Gallery. I don't know if you know the White Cube Gallery, but it's the most massive Joplin. uh, I want to say it's not Janice, (laughs) Jay Joplin. Jay Joplin has this. White Cube and you know Tracy Emin was his first that. but he has really big artists and uh, an artist and his wife that we worked a lot with in Dusseldorf and Cologne is called Imi Knubel and he's got a massive show in White Cube and they've asked us to perform there at the opening so we're going to just play the first album and a couple of other songs next week and so that's amazing it's like it's all go
3: Incredible. I'm so glad to meet you, Gina. Thank you so much for meeting up with me to do this.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's the pleasure. It's all mine.
2: Well, thanks again to Gina Birch for that awesome conversation, and I do hope she will get in some U.S. dates later this year. I'll keep you posted. And thank you for listening. The next episode is with Sun Lux, and they're nominated for a couple of Academy Awards for their music for the film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And if you have questions or feedback, you can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at JennyLSQ. Talk to you next time.